to say in a little while is a very strange thing. Very strange. Think about it. And a lot of you grew up in the church, but some of you didn't. In front of a crowd of people, someone is going to get into a pool. In the middle of winter, I shall add. They're going to get into a pool. They're going to be immersed under the water. They're going to be pulled out of the water. And then the crowd are likely going to applaud. That's what's happening. And the applause makes sense if we're talking about the Olympic diving event where someone does a quadruple backflip and a few twists. Maybe JC will try that. I don't know. But that's what's happening. So it's, it's, it's kind of a strange thing if you think about it and you don't know what baptism is. There is going to be a little bit of a sense of this morning's message feeling like you're drinking through a fire hose trying to get something out of it, okay? I have been consistently amazed. The more I study the subject of baptism, the more I learn about Scripture, the more I start seeing how baptism is this remarkably wonderful, rich picture, what it stands for consistently amazed. And the more I study it, the more amazed I am at what God has done in Christ and how baptism is this marvelous, glorious picture of union with Jesus Christ. I essentially wrote three sermons this week. I don't normally do that. That was a wonderful thing. It was very productive. The problem is I'm only preaching one of them. So I've had to take the chainsaw to my sermon and... um, move some of those things aside. But my hope is rather not to confuse, but that each one of us here might learn something new and be amazed at what is being pictured in the simple act of someone going under the water and being raised. What we're going to do, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verses 23 to 27. If you grew up in any kind of expository preaching church, what I'm going to do next is anathema. That is going to be a launching pad to look at four themes from the text throughout Scripture. Okay? I don't normally do that, and you can check our website if you don't believe me. Okay? We're going to see four themes from this text that we're going to read, and we're going to see how baptism relates to each one of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 20, this is God's word. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. This is God's word to us. Four main 
contrasting themes in our text this morning. The first one is from verses 21, 22, and 26. From judgment leading to death to the blessings of new life. That's the first theme. Second theme is verses 21 and 22 as well. To go from being in Adam to in Christ. The third one is in verses 22 and 23. From being apart from Christ to identification with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the last one is verses 23 to 27, and that is going from being enemies and rebels to living under the kingdom rule of Jesus. That sounds a lot. I wasn't lying about drinking from a fire hose. Um, We're going to go through those reasonably uh, reasonably, uh, quickly and look at how each one of those themes is developed uh, through the book of through the whole book of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it is one story, God's story of Jesus Christ, and each one of those themes is pictured in baptism. Much of these themes find their start in the Old Testament, but they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And baptism pictures our union with Him. Cool. Let's go. First one, from judgment leading to death to the blessings of new life. There's a theme of justice in our text. The big idea is that God created all things good. You can read that story in Genesis 1 and 2. And he placed man and woman in a garden, a sanctuary of worship. And in Genesis 2.9, he said that there is a tree of life, and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave Adam the man a creation mandate in Genesis 2:15. He says, "The Lord took the man, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Very nice and straightforward there. Adam was given two functions. The first one, he was told to work the garden, to work it. And that means to cultivate it and to steward, uh, be a steward of it. This was a, a kingly function. This is your land, look after it. The second thing is told to keep it. And if you say to people, what does work it and keep it mean? People assume they're exactly the same thing. But it says, no, he was told to work the garden. And the second thing is to keep it. And there's a lot of richness in that picture. Basically, what God was saying to Adam was, you are priest in this garden. Your job is to protect the sanctuary. You are to keep evil from coming into it. Adam and God were in perfect relationship, and it was a place of worship in that garden. Adam's job, like the Levitical priesthood in the temple, was to keep evil from entering. And there was a blessing promised to him. If he was able to fulfill this test, if he obeyed God, it would be life for him and his descendants. He would continue to receive God's blessing, and they would live long in that garden. 
We all know what happened next. Adam and Eve rebelled after being influenced by the serpent, Satan, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, exactly what God had told them not to do. But on the way there, the path was made a lot easier. Adam allowed an unwelcome visitor to enter into the garden sanctuary. He failed to keep the garden. His role was to maintain life, and his job was to know the difference between good and evil. He failed to discern evil. The world was never the same thereafter as the curse was placed upon the world and upon man in Genesis chapter 3. It was the curse of judgment, and with judgment came death. God said to Adam, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. We see also in Genesis chapter 3 the first promise of a Savior. I use this verse a lot, Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That was a promise that a Savior would come. And he would crush the head of the serpent and reverse that curse. Adam was tested and he failed his test. It was an act of righteousness and being obedient to God's law and he failed. If he had succeeded, it would have been life to all of him. None of us would be getting sick. None of us would die. The old blacks would never lose. Oh, they don't already, but it's... It's a great, it would have been wonderful, but he failed. Judgment came into the world. And we see that the promise of a Savior is preserved, and yet we still have judgment upon the earth. We see that in Noah. God judged the earth in righteousness and brought a flood upon the world. Water, by the way. Water was used as a symbol of judgment. We're using water here for something quite different. Noah and his family were preserved by grace from the water. And God sent a sign of his covenant agreement with Noah that he would not wipe out the world. And the sign of this covenant with Noah was the rainbow. made complete sense also in Genesis chapter 9 that God gave to Noah principles of just to continue the human race. He wanted to preserve humanity. He wanted to preserve humanity that the Savior would come through this line. And the principle of justice comes out in Genesis 9 with the verse that he who sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. God likewise made a, a covenantal agreement with, with Abraham through Abraham, he created the Israelite nation. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt through the exodus of the hand of Moses, and he placed them into the promised land, a land of Canaan, a land of milk and honey. And they were called to remove the idolatrous Canaanite people from the land. Canaan, that promised land, served as a copy of the Garden of Eden. God is reversing this curse. It was to be a land of worship of the true God. It was to be a sanctuary. 
religious worship of God was to be the highest priority in this kingdom of Egypt in that land of Canaan. And like Adam, the people failed to remove the evil from God's land. Just like Adam did, failed to keep it. This culminated in their removal from the land into captivity in Babylon. The people then received the line of kings, which beginning with David, these kings failed to uphold the law of God in the land, and judgment was inevitable. Failure after failure after failure, even though we see God at work seeking to save people from judgment. And in the midst of the hopelessness of this judgment, as the people living under a pagan king in Babylon, hope began to rekindle that that seed of the woman that was promised would crush the serpent's head. Hope began to rekindle for that man. The people of Israel longed more and more for the Messiah who would lift the judgment of sin and bring them into their own land. But failure after failure and continued. The Old Testament in the Bible is a book, multiple books, seemingly just fold with darkness and failure. But there is that scarlet thread of hope running right through it. This Messiah is Jesus. He is the greater Adam who failed, who did what Adam failed to do. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, passed the test that Adam had failed. Rather than letting evil in, rather than letting evil triumph, Jesus triumphed over evil himself. And those that trust in him, these three young people this morning included, those who trust in him receive justification, they receive the removal of the judgment that has come into this world because of sin, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus right now. They receive something else as well. They receive life, new life, eternal life. Jesus' righteous life allowed him to be the head of the new creation. It starts off good, it goes bad, but it gets even better at the end because there was a new creation, new heavens and earth. We read in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is the greater Adam because he did not fail. He is the greater David. He is the king of the kingdom of God, the king of this new creation. And he is the great high priest who reconciles men and women to God. What on earth does that have to do with baptism? Right? That's what we're here for, right? What does all of that have to do with baptism? Baptism identifies us with Jesus, and he is the head of the new creation. We belong to him. We can say that baptism is therefore an ordinance, or if you prefer, a sacrament of the new creation. It is a sign that we are part of that new creation of Jesus Christ. The reality of judgment, the reality 
of death should place an urgency upon each one of us to seek forgiveness of sin, to be able to withstand the judgment of God, and to pass on from this cursed and fallen world into the new creation, the end state. Baptism is also a picture of 2 Corinthians 5, 17-18. Not only is there a new creation at the end, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How is God reversing this curse in Christ? He is making people new as he brings about a new creation. Baptism is a picture that that is what you're part of. Your blacks were a black jersey. Okay, It's a uniform. These people are placing on a a different sort of uniform, an invisible one that comes through water. I play on this team now. I am part of Jesus' new creation. That is what is happening in baptism. Each person here being baptized is declaring that they are free from the judgment of God for their sin, and they will spend eternity with Christ. That is a monumentally wonderful picture, is it not? Is that not the greatest need of the human race? That is being pictured in that pool this afternoon. Secondly, point two of four. They'll get faster, don't worry. Secondly, to go from being in Adam to in Christ. I've already developed some of this. There's a theme of headship, theme of covenantal headship in our text. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. You could call this federal headship. You could call this covenantal headship. It is an old word. We see headship taught in places like Ephesians 5.23, where the husband is said to be the head of the home. Unpopular opinion, I know. It's in the Bible. Take it up with God. And here we have the word covenant, and that is very, very simple. It does not need to be uh, unpopular either. A covenant is very simply the terms by which God relates to people. I promise you this in exchange for these conditions. Either your obedience will merit what I give you, or I will simply give you something and you must receive it. Okay? Covenant is the terms by which God relates to In our natural state, each one of us has rebelled against God. We've joined in Adam's rebellion, and we have sinned. We violate God's laws, and we live for ourselves. This is why we die. This is why if we continued in that state of rebellion, we would enter into what's called the second death, hell. And this is not unfair, because each one of us here has sinned and rebelled Woefully, no one made you sin. God is not unjust in this. But it is remarkable because God institutes a plan of redemption. And in God's plan of redemption, he begins instituting a series of covenantal agreements. In Noah, he preserves humanity. In Abraham, he forms the nation of Israel. In Moses, 
the, the nation are given laws and they're given the own land, that land of Canaan. And in David, the people are given a king. But what we're going to do is I want to focus a little bit on Abraham because there's a tie here that helps us understand baptism and why it is better than the Old Testament sign. In Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God promised Abraham, he made a covenant with Abraham, that he and his descendants would be given the land of Canaan and also that through his offspring, through his descendants, the whole world would be blessed. That offspring would be Christ. So this was the promise that the Savior would come from Abraham's line and he would bless the whole world. That was a continuation of that promise given in Genesis 3 of the seed of a woman. Now, sign of the covenant was that with Abraham, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was that God required all males to be circumcised on the eighth day. This was a sign that the true God was their God, that they were his people, and that those two covenant promises, that the land of Canaan would be theirs, and that the Messiah would come through their line, those two covenant promises belonged to those who were part of this covenant community. And this set the Jewish people apart from those who did not worship God. The covenant head, the federal head, was Abraham. And as we consider baptism, those facts are important to keep in mind. We fast forward here from Abraham. We go through Moses. We go through David. This is killing me. I want to talk so much about that, but we can't be here till 2 o'clock. We see another principle. That the kingdom of God is inherited based upon the faithfulness of the covenant head. That is very important. The promises of a Redeemer, the promise of the Messiah, were pushed into the background in the Old Testament as a series of wicked kings and the disobedience of the Israelite people culminated in their exile into Babylon. You can read about that in the book of Jeremiah. And in the midst of this dark time, the darkest time in Israel's history, in Jeremiah chapter 31, God promised a new covenant, a better covenant, better promises. And you can read about this in Jeremiah 31 or in Hebrews chapter 8, same same text. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 to 12 about this new covenant. Four promises. Verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Let me summarize that for you real quick. The law of God written on the heart that God will be their God third promise, that everyone in this covenant community will know the Lord, have a saving relationship with Him, and that God will be merciful towards their iniquities and remember their sins no more, forgive their sins. Those are the four covenant promises of the new covenant. 
the expectation, remember this was given in a dark time, this was given in exile in Babylon, the expectation of a better covenant remained unrealized for hundreds of years more. Until the night before Jesus died. In the upper room, Luke 22, he uttered these words. Verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Hundreds, thousands of years of biblical history at that point comes to its fulfillment. And Jesus says, this new covenant, it's happening. The night before he dies. That new covenant is celebrated, that promised new covenant is celebrated in the Lord's Supper. And this was a monumental moment because no longer do we have a covenant where the blessings are received by the obedience of the people who are in the covenant community, but instead the blessings are received by faith. No longer is it reliant upon the obedience of the people and the obedience of the covenant head to get the blessings of the covenant, but instead they are simply given and received by faith because Because the covenant head is perfect. His name is Jesus Christ. He's better than Adam. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Noah. He's better than David. He's better than them all because he's perfect, because he's the Son of God. What's the condition of the new covenant? That you receive the blessings by faith. You must believe in the covenant head. But can it be broken? No. No exile, no trips to hell, nothing of that sort for anyone, no condemnation, because the covenant head keeps the terms perfectly. What on earth does this have to do with baptism then? Okay, let me sum it all up here. I said to all the people getting, uh, all the young people getting baptized, what's this? I just took it off my, my hand. What's this? A wedding ring. Yeah? What is it? It's a sign of a union between a husband and a wife. It's a sign of my marriage. I say to them, is this my marriage? Hope not. Can't buy my, you can't buy my, uh, can't buy my marriage for $100 on trade me. Um, right? No, but it's a sign that there is a union, a covenantal agreement between my wife, myself, and God. That's what it's picturing. Okay, one of the highlights of my year is saying, going through a series of questions with people getting baptized, and I say something like this to them. Laura, Jesse, and Jess, I said to them, who is the head of the Abrahamic covenant? And they would say, Abraham. I'm like, trick question? No, Abraham. What was the sign that you were part of the Abrahamic covenant? Uh, circumcision. Cool? And what did it mean? It meant that you were a Jew, that you had the 
to the land of Canaan and that the Messiah would come from your line. Great. Then I said, say to them, did being part of the Abrahamic covenant community guarantee that you would have a saving relationship with that Messiah who was coming from your line? Did it mean that you were in a saving relationship with God because you were circumcised? No. No. They were promised that the Messiah would come from their line, but it didn't guarantee that they would have a saving relationship with him. Cool. Next one. Who's the head of the new covenant that we just read about in Hebrews chapter 8? Typical Sunday school answer. Jesus? Yes, Jesus is the head of the new covenant. Then I'd ask them this, and this is what always threw them. What is the sign that you're part of the New Covenant community? Baptism? Yes. And the lights went on. Mouths literally fell open. To be part of the Abrahamic Covenant, you were circumcised. To be part of the New Covenant community, you were baptized. So what does that mean? Well, it means you've received the promises of the new covenant, which are that God's law is written on your heart, that he is your God, that you know him, and that he remembers your sin no more. I had one young person say, I'm forgiven! Because the lights went on. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. How do you receive those blessings? By believing in Jesus Christ. That is what is being pictured in baptism. Sorry, Olympic divers, this is cooler than what you do. Thirdly, and I'll speed this right up now, from being in judgment apart from Christ to identification with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul develops this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, a wonderful, wonderful passage. Verse 3 of Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Are we seeing the symbolism? Or symbology if you went to public school? So, baptism, I went to public school, okay? Um, baptism is a sign of our identification with Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Why is this so important? Because of the blessings that are secured by being tied to Jesus Christ and the judgment that it saves from. There's only salvation in Jesus' name. So we see this in Christian baptism, that the Christian is buried under the water. Their old life has died just as Jesus died. And they were buried just as Jesus was buried. In going under the water, we identify with Jesus in his death and his burial. But that's not the end of the story. God vindicated Jesus' sacrifice by raising him on the third day. Christians are baptized in identification with the risen Christ who lived 
forever. And this is why the symbolism is so, so special. Can you imagine what would happen if we just baptized the person? We put them under the water, right? Death and burial, right? We put them under the water and we just left them there. I'm not trying to be crass. It's just like we just left them there. Not going to go well for them, right? And this is why we must raise them. Because they have been raised in newness of life and identification with Jesus Christ. It is the resurrection from the dead that guarantees the blessings of salvation. And that is being pictured in baptism. My old life has died. I am a new creation and I have been raised with Jesus Christ. Because he rose from the grave, I too will rise. I too will receive the upward call at the end of this age. I may die, but I will be raised, receive his resurrection power, and live eternally with him. That is being pictured in baptism. Olympic diving just keeps going down and down and down. This is such a wonderful picture. And lastly, to go from enemies to living under the kingdom rule of Jesus. God's plan is to subject all things under the rule and reign of Jesus. And this makes total sense because if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, what happened? How did the fall happen? People rebelled against God's rule. In creating the world new, we are brought under the rule of God again. And this is pictured in baptism as well. Jesus is Lord. He is king over a kingdom. And in his great commission to the church, he says in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Big idea. First, respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in him. Then, be baptized. Baptism is essentially step one in Christian discipleship. The disciple is a learner of Jesus Christ, one who follows after Jesus, and the disciple lives under the rule of Jesus Christ. That's the huge thing that's happening here. Jesus has all authority, and rather than living in rebellion to the king, the person that's being baptized is showing under whose authority they have come to live. Jesus. I live under his rule. He is my Lord. What this means is that each person being baptized has become part of his bride, the church, You are taught his word, and you are promised that through the Holy Spirit he will be with you until the end of the age. Paul brings this rich picture of lordship and authority uh, together in that wonderful phrase in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Under whose authority you are coming to live is being pictured in baptism. In conclusion,
In baptism, we show symbolically that we are being saved through water from the coming judgment. We have been transferred from being in Adam and the hopelessness that is found in him to in Christ and the new life that comes in him. It is not the baptism itself which saves, but faith in the Savior, the perfect covenant head, Jesus Christ. Baptism is the sign, like a wedding ring, of our union with Jesus Christ, that our old life has died with him and we are raised like he was raised from the dead. Jesus, Baptism also shows that Jesus makes us new creations, and he has made us new creations, and it ushers us into his kingdom rule as we live under his authority as we wait the fullness of his kingdom, the fullness of the new creation, the fullness of the new heaven and the new earth. And that the person being baptized is free from all condemnation and judgment because Jesus paid the price. Amen.